This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff sits down with pro-democracy Hong Kong dissident Francis Hui, who serves as the Policy and Advocacy Coordinator at the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation. Francis discusses her democracy activism, which she has been involved in since her teenage years, and what the ongoing fight for freedom and democracy in Hong Kong entails. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff, and I feel very privileged to introduce you all today to Francis Hui, who is the Policy and Advocacy Coordinator at the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation. They're an organization that promotes democratic principles in Hong Kong, and Francis also started and runs an organization called We the Hong Kongers, which is a nonprofit based here in the U.S. Uh, it works to promote identity and, and culture and community among Hong Kongers. Uh, Francis, welcome to Reaganism. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you are probably one of the youngest guests that we've ever had on our podcast. Uh, really? You were just in your 20s and you've already done so much important work uh, fighting on the front lines um, in the battle for freedom and, and the battle against the Chinese Communist Party's repressive actions in Hong Kong. You've uh, you've really dedicated your long, young life and your your career to, uh, to advocating for freedom and dignity of the people of Hong Kong. And uh, and you actually began your advocacy when you were quite young, even younger than I imagined, uh, only in your teens, thirteen or fourteen years old. Um, so we've had lots of guests on Reaganism who have talked to us about their own battles for, for freedom around the world, what they've done to stand up to autocratic and authoritarian regimes, and even a few who have talked about what's happening in Hong Kong. And they've described life kind of prior to the transition from British to Chinese rule in 97, but, but you and your generation of activists um, were, were largely born after that transition. And so I wonder if to start, you might just share with our listeners what life was like for you growing up in Hong Kong and why you decided to get involved in political activism at such a young age. Well, so you said the point, I was born after the handover. Um, so I've never experienced actually like, um, you know, the British colonial rule. Um, but, you know, Hong Kong has always you know, have all these like culture that was left after the colonial time. Um, and so it's a really like a mix of Chinese culture, Western culture all together. It's an international city. Um, and I just, you know, I grew up learning. Uh, we have to like go to class and um, learn about the basic law, like, you know, the many constitutions um, of the city. And here I learned about, you know, the freedoms that we get, um, how we are different from mainland China. Um, you know, we get the freedoms of speech, um, freedom of assembly, and it's actually, you know, quite practiced and, you know, among society. Like I see that in the news, like people are on the streets protesting and it's quite embedded in our culture. Um, and, you know, one example of it is like, you know, during the holiday, say like the July 1st, like the celebration of the handover, um, the tradition of Hong Kong people is that we have like a, like every, every year, like the tradition is people would go onto the streets and protest and rally um, every July 1st and October 1st. Um, and, you know, if you think about it in America, like you, you have like, 
this the holiday to take a day off, but people in the, in Hong Kong would actually go into the streets and and protest, um, and and whatever social issues that um you know come up to you know speak to them, they they would go into the streets. So it's really embedded in our culture, um, and I think this is how you know it shows that Hong Kong people are really like freedom lover, um, and we hope that uh, you know eventually we can democratize and have our own election, right? Um, and so I I just grew up seeing the news and like learn about that we have all these freedoms. Um, I remember uh, when I was 10, um, I saw on on the TV about the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, obviously, I wasn't born and it, was, it happened in like 1989. Um, but I saw a documentary about it. Um, this is like how free it was like in, in Hong Kong that, you know, TV stations, TV channels, they would talk about the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, and I learned about it. I was like, wow, like, you know, this happened like 20 years ago in China. Um, and at that time, I was really like, I think I grew up thinking that I'm, you know, a Chinese, like I never had question about my identity. Um, but once I learned about it, I was like, you know, what happened in 29, like 20 years ago? And, um, you know, like what, what that means to me. Um, and so I initiated to basically to say that like I wanted to join the vigil in Victoria Park. Um, and that was actually the first time I went, like I attended a rally. Um, and I think that completely changed my life um, from, you know, like thinking that I'm a Chinese. And then at that point, I started to question myself, like, you know, who am I? Like, what's my identity? And like, what everything, like all these means to me, like what happened in in, in the past and like, you know, like freedoms and all that kind of things. What does that mean? Um, and I think another life-changing moment is like in 2012, um, I saw on TV about like the education scheme that was proposed by the government. And basically it's like, you know, um, students have to take mandatory courses uh, about like patriotism, um, you know, national education. Um, and Joshua Wong, and a bunch of like high school students, they went on the streets, like, uh, you know, in front of the um, government headquarters <clears throat> and protest against it. And I saw on, on TV, like, these are people who were wearing uniforms, like school uniforms, just like me. Um, I, I thought it was so um, inspiring. And so I joined them as well. And I think that's how I like slowly, like step-by-step step got into, you know, getting involved in social movements. Um, and paying attention more to like what's going on in society. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, later on um, after that, I joined Scholarism, you know, with with the organization that started the, the protest. Um, and it, it was just a bunch of people who wear school uniforms, like high school, middle school students. Um, and I think that kind of like opened up a new chapter of like, social movements in Hong Kong where like middle school students and high school students were also um, quite, you know, quite present in, 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 in that area in society. Like it's not, it's no longer like a thing for adults, like students have a say in, in this place. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's how I like slowly got into where I am right now. You talk about those those protests, young people and, and the citizens of Hong Kong really really taking to the streets in in, um, in quite impressive and, and awesome numbers, kind of in those those mid 2010s. The 
it became known as the umbrella movement, right? So many uh, Hong Kongers in the streets with umbrellas often. If listeners haven't seen that footage, I, I uh, highly recommend um, looking up those images and some of that footage around that 2014 umbrella movement. Um, and you talked about what, what teenagers can do, what school, school students can do um, to have their own voices heard under you know, those relative freedoms that, that the people of Hong Kong had at the time. Um, give us a bit of a sense about what led up to that umbrella movement around 2014. What changed in Hong Kong between 1997 and 2014, kind of in practical terms to the lives of, of everyday Hong Kongers that led to those protests? You know, like you said, Hong, Hong Kongers, you know, really have that, that assembly and, and protest Kind of built into their DNA in some ways with those vigils and, and commemorations for the Tiananmen Square protests and that connection to what was happening in mainland China. But uh, something changed around that umbrella movement. Tell us about, about that time. So I think so, I think it's important to um, remember that um, Hong Kongers, they, they have always wanted, you know, there is always persistence against integrating with China. Um, I think a lot of us take pride of like the differences um, and it, like the differences, it's not like we're, you know, like we're better than anyone or stuff like that. It's more like, you know, the freedoms that we have are really important. And like, it, it like goes back to like the Tiananmen Square massacre vigil, like Hong Kong, um, you know, the vigil is like the only place in China that are able to um, commemorate the incident. Um, and so it, it was, uh, you know, now it's banned, but this that it was the case in the past. And I think, you know, what happened was um, in basic law, um, uh, we were promised that eventually Hong Kong people would be able to elect our own officials. Um, and And so, you know, a little bit of like, kind of a 101 thing it's like we have we get to like participate in the election for the legislative members but we can't do it with like our chief executive the chief executive has like a, a election committee that helps that that kind of represents people and it's i think it's um made of like 1500 um committee members who would essentially like nominate or like to 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 vote for the chief executive and then at the end um china like beijing government would um officially appoint that person to be the chief executive which is basically the leader of the city um so we don't get to participate into into this process um and people you know the this is what people were hoping is that eventually you know according to the basic law Hong Kong people would be able to participate in this process. Um, and I think that was like kind of like why people were have been sticking around, um, fighting for that, um, to reach to that goal. Um, but then in 2014, the, the CCP um, introduced a proposal, which is to further limit the um, way that we can get involved in this process. Back then, we still have, we, we still get to like, participate in the process of electing um, the election committee people to, uh, you know, represent us and, and and to go on in this process. And the proposal that was brought down to um, C the CCP is that they will further limit that um, the way, like the degree that um, Hong Kong people can participate in, in the process. And so it, you know, 
piss people off and like you know we're walking backwards we're not reaching that goal we're not getting closer um and so i think it started with uh you know obviously civil society but then um it was really like the students the college students and also scholarism um which um you know asked for students to take on a class boycott um and and you know, oppose a bill um, and um, essentially like when they do the class boycott, they were all gather in front of the legislative council and the government's headquarter on that day. And so I think the college students, they had like a week long boycott in, in, in their university. And then um, the, you know, scholarism, which represents more of the teenagers, the, the high school and middle school students, um, call for a, a, a boycott um, in front of the government headquarter and uh, for a day. Um, and then on that day, at the end of the night, um, I don't know if people have seen the video of it, but um, Joshua Wong, um, a lot of people in scholars, and basically they step on the stage and, 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 and say, now we're going to go into the government headquarter ground and everyone just like storm into it um, and basically occupy the, the ground in front of the headquarter and ask for, um, you know, the governments to respond to us. And then eventually it just broke out to a, a bigger like street protest, um, you know, to the streets around the headquarter. Um, people um, got onto the highway and occupied the highway. It was basically like kind of like the main roads in Hong Kong, which gets to a lot of like, you know, the business buildings and um, whatnot. Um, and so the the whole city was like, you know, kind of like paying attention to this because the highway was shut down um, with all the people storming in, onto the, on, onto the, you know, on, onto the, the streets. Um, and, and so it started the umbrella movement. Um, obviously it was met with like police violence, um, you know, tear gas, um, you know, pepper spray and all that. And I was, I was also on the street and at that time with my school uniforms, I, I remember, um, that's how it started. And, and the, and the movement lasted for like 79 days. Um, the government didn't back down. Um, but they basically withdraw the proposal that was going to further limit our participation. So, you know, it's, it, some people think it's a failure that we weren't able to push forward, but at least we were able to like kind of block um, that proposal from going forward. Um, so that's how it started. But I think the impact of it, it's even more like it's even like, you know, bigger than the outcome is that after the umbrella movement, there were so it, it first it, um, you know, ignite the, 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 the spirits in Hong Kong people and they see the reality is that, oh, no, like we're going backwards. Like if we don't say like if if we don't like pay attention to this, we're gonna like lose our freedom eventually. And so after the umbrella movement, because many people joined and like built that sense of belonging to the city and and their identity, um, after even after the movements, there were sh a lot of groups that evolved from this movement. Um, and that was basically the time when like civil society really thrived. There were many like post umbrella groups that were formed across different sectors. Um, there were like lawyer groups, um, you know, other students group and like people were talking about different approach. Um, it's no longer like a like a single-sided, like, you know, pan-democrats um, uh, movement. It's like 
there are a little like a lot of different things that came out of that um, like movement that really built the foundation for the 2019 movement to happen. So the impact of umbrella is actually really big, um, and and I'm really I was really lucky that I, you know, uh, were there to experience that that environment is that like you know I get to educate myself with different issues with different approaches different ideology and uh it, it really thrived at that time yeah so that that 2014 umbrella movement kind of the reaction among the Hong Kongers to that rollback of, of freedom and participation in democracy uh, at the hands of of uh, Beijing uh, that those umbrellas that came to define the movement there to protect everyday citizens who were, were taking to the streets to demonstrate um, according to their rights under the basic law, then needing umbrellas to protect themselves from, from tear gas and, yeah. and, um, and those attacks from the police. Everything after that and your, your involvement then so, so young in the process, everything after that kind of uh, moment, as you say, when, when the people of Hong Kong sort of some of those seeds of, of uh, participate, participating in those protests, unfortunately, uh, preceded like a continued uh, decay of, of uh, and, and attack on a crackdown on freedoms and, and democracy in Hong Kong. By that time, I believe you, you shortly after those umbrella movement protests came for, for university here in the United States. And so I imagine during that time, you were watching kind of Hong Kong take take a turn for the worse, especially as the Chinese Communist Party imposed the the national security law that we've we've read so so much about, and kind of the resulting um, even greater crackdown on freedoms in Hong Kong that led to even greater massive protests. Talk a bit about that that time, maybe in particular what it was like watching those developments that. Um, that attack on freedom in Hong Kong from here in the U.S. and and how you found activism, you know, when you're on the streets in Hong Kong, that looks like one thing with with your fellow Hong Kongers. But what that activism looked like from the U.S. Uh, as well. So uh, I talked about how the umbrella movement have an impact, a, a very long lasting impact to the society. To me, um, it really like it ignited like i i built an interest for journalism because i saw how um journalists were always on the front line reporting um what's going on um whether it was like you know clashes between protesters and or police or investigation um you know into for like further details of things um i i was just i was so captivated and i i felt like you know this is my role and i actually after the 2014 movement i joined um uh, an online media in hong kong to kind of volunteer for them um and so eventually almost till the end of my high school study i was thinking you know i really want to like you know first if i go to universities i want to study journalism but also um like what more can I do to bring Hong Kong to international media to more attention from the world? Um, I wasn't really like, I didn't go to an international school. Um, and I, I wasn't like, my English is not like exceptionally good. Um, you know, obviously like I, I improved over the time, but, um, I was thinking like, what if I change my focus to like, you know, 
write English and like, you know, report about Hong Kong for like international media. And so I eventually, you know, left Hong Kong and went to a U.S. college to study journalism and really like try to like, you know, my goal was to want was to be able to like, you know, one day be back to Hong Kong and like report for like foreign uh, media outlets um, and really like make Hong Kong to be in the headlines of like, I don't know, like Washington Post or, you know, like pre prestigious like U.S. media or stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was my goal. And then I just came to the U.S. And I think during the time, like between, uh, you know, 20, 2016 to 2019, I think people kind of also have a little like fatigue from the movement and think that, you know, it's not a big deal. Like I think I, I saw a lot of people, they went to mainland China and they like, you know, you know, had a good life and things like that. And I was, I, there were was, was time that I was like, you know, do people like get tired, like from all these like movements and stuff. And maybe they like, they don't care. Um, but then in 2019, when, um, you know, it was still really like the identity of being a Hong Konger is still with me. Like when I was studying in the U.S., um, I felt so underrepresented um, when I say like, you know, I'm from Hong Kong or like when I when I get to know about like get to know some other Taiwanese friends and like Uyghur friends, a lot of them have the same struggle um, studying abroad is that their university do not understand um, about the, you know, the problems with like the complication between these places um, and how we really like not identify as Chinese. Um, and and so I went ahead with like a, a student newspaper at that time, like when I was uh, an editor at that time, I wrote a, an article called I'm from Hong Kong, not China, um, which, you know, like simply laid out the history um, of Hong Kong and how people of Hong Kong slowly build that Hong Kong identity in ourselves um, and why we we don't see ourselves as like Chinese. And and it, it includes like how like an argument that, you know, universities should educate themselves about these things um, just so they, they don't like misrepresent the people from Hong Kong, from, you know, Xinjiang, from uh, Taiwan. Um, when when that article came out, it it got a huge feedback, um, you know, on both sides, like from Hong Kong, people were like, were so happy, like someone like, a, you know, a Hong Kong girl and, you know, studying in the US, like write about this. Um, no one have written about this. And they were so encouraged. And like, um, people were really happy, like, you know, that's how most of people in Hong Kong get to know me at the first place. Um, but then here, like the Chinese students community were outraged. They were really upset about this article. And, you know, I got into all sort of like, you know, death threats and like, you know, harassment because of, of that article. But you see how like, you know, how, you know, how things split here. Um, and people in Hong Kong were happy about this because it really represents, like, it really speaks to their heart, like the the struggle, the identity crisis um, that Hong Kong people have. Um, and then after that, the extradition, shortly after that, it was like the, the start of the um, 2019 movement, um, because we learn about um, the extradition bill that was proposed by the government. And uh, when, when it first got introduced, um, 
it was it was it was really like like it, it was really surprising to a lot of us because it's essentially like blurring the, the line between two extradition like two judicial system like Hong Kong and China they runs in two separate uh, like they have two separate law two separate court um you know it's completely different and in China the conviction rate it's like 99.9% which is like you know you don't really get to like defend yourself anyway um and it's people start to worry like is it going to um you know be used to target on like journalists um lawmakers like any sort of dissent any dissidents in Hong Kong um essentially under that law they could be extradited to China and be trial under um under China law and it's this is so scary and when it was introduced first it didn't got a lot of attention but then you know as lawmakers were like asking questions and you know civil society start to pick it up um it was actually a big deal people realized and so um they call for like a first rally opposing it and that was the time i was like we should do that in the us too we should do that in every other countries like um you know in the uk or anywhere like hong kong people are residing um to draw more international attention um so we started coordinating like you know international like solidarity rallies with hong kong um and and so that's how i got it into like organizing rallies not in hong kong but you know coordinating it around the world and i remember on that day on, on june 9th we have like at least at least 20 cities around the world um doing the same thing you know bringing the issue to to the streets and telling people this is happening in hong kong and this is kind of like the last fight because you know the rule of law and our judicial system is really like the last battleground um if we lose that we is basically lose hong kong like the you know the the freedoms and um the justice we have built in the past decades um and and so i think it started from there and and it it got a lot of attention from you know international media um people in hong kong i think there were like 1.3 million people took to the street on that day um it was it was huge and then like a few days later it was 2 million people in hong kong and we just keep doing that you know like abroad um and just keep like spreading the issue and, and raising awareness um that's how we like i think build the momentum all around the world um and and yeah well it certainly got some attention from the authorities in hong kong and from the ccp as well and when you <laughs> returned to hong kong after university ultimately you made the decision um that it wasn't safe for you to stay and and you were actually the first Hong Konger to receive uh, political asylum in the U.S. Um, that's it's it's still kind of such a striking thing to say that somebody from Hong Kong would need to seek political asylum yeah. in the U.S. I I actually visited Hong Kong um, when I was about the age that you started your activism when I was really? 14 years old before before the handoff and and you know every everything that that you've talked about the freedoms um, and the the democratic uh, norms that the society enjoyed during that time. It's just crazy to think about that in the 21st century, uh, with the eyes of the world, you know, able to to focus on crisis to crisis to crisis, that there would be such a rollback 
of freedom, that somebody who stands up for the basic principles of democracy would not be safe uh, in their own city. So, so talk a little bit about that process, that decision on your part, I guess, the process of making the decision um, that it wasn't safe for you to remain in Hong Kong and then, and then um, that process of seeking political asylum in the U.S. Uh, from, from a place like Hong Kong. Right. Well, I think first it's important for me to kind of clarify um, that we're because we're, I, I know people are going to attack this um, is that we're not saying life is better when like before the handover. Like it, we're not saying that we, we love British colon, colonialism and stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, there are horrible things that happen during that time. Um, we never deny it. And what we're trying to say is like, it's not like you know, we want the time before handover. We never say that British people like have gave us freedom and and things like that. But I think what we're saying is they built the foundation for the the freedoms and the democracy that happened afterwards. Um, and and you know the government, the the system um, in place where where all the work um, put like were were work that you know Hong Kongers put into um and the politicians at that time they put into the work to to build that system after the handover so you know what we're saying is like we're walking backwards and i think you, you mentioned a really good point is that i never thought hong kong would have political asylum I, I never thought about it when i was when i was young when i was like really like <laughs> deeply involved in social movements i never thought about it um and I never thought about, like, never imagined that I would be part of it. Like, I would be one of it. Um, and I think uh, I earlier I talked about how we like organize rallies uh, around the world, and I I thought it was normal. Like, you know, here in the U.S., I have all the rights to do it. Um, like, I never thought that it would get me to the point that oh, like I'm now a criminal in Hong Kong. Like this is not, a, like it's not legal <laughs> like for what I'm doing here in the US. Um, and yeah, like after I graduated, I, I I went back to Hong Kong and I wanted to, you know, pursue my dream. Like I, I talked about earlier, like I want to go back to Hong Kong and, you know, report um, things that are happening in Hong Kong for, um, you know, uh, foreign media. And, and so I did, I went back to Hong Kong um, after I graduated. But then in June 2020, um, the national security law was uh, passed in the the People's Congress in, in China. Um, it was essentially imposed in Hong Kong. It was not like there isn't even like a legislation process that happened in Hong Kong. Um, it was just forcibly imposed in Hong Kong and um, the national security law basically criminalizes, you know, any secession, sedition, um, subversion to the government, and also active um, colluding with foreign forces. Um, and by that, it means like the the colluding with collusion with foreign forces is basically covering any sort of things that involves like any foreign factors like whether like you know for me in my case you know the my efforts advocating on the hill um you know for for uh hong kong related bills um or like raising awareness and in, in in you know in the us um about uh what's going on in hong kong like um like even having this podcast could be used as an evidence on the court um, as, you know, violating the national security law. Um, it was so vaguely written um, to essentially to, to 
to create a chilling effect on everyone. There isn't really like a very consistent, um, clear red line that people can follow. It's it's a really like um, it's a wide covering and like a very vaguely written law that everyone in every sector, every age, all age, and um, people locating in, into anywhere in this world could think to themselves like, is this going like what I'm doing? Is this going to violate the national security law? So it sends a big chilling effect to the entire city. Um, people start to self-censor themselves. Um, um, even people here in the US um, out of Hong Kong, because the national security law applies to everyone in this world. Um, any evidence um, that like, you know, anything, any activities happening in, in outside of Hong Kong can also be used in, as an evidence against you. Um, and so everyone is silenced um, and they didn't know to what extent they could um, speak up and, and share. And so they rather not to speak up and they rather stay quiet. Um, for me, when I at that time I was in Hong Kong, I like I didn't take it seriously. I thought it was like I thought it was a joke, like to scare people off. Um, and so I I remember when when news first came down, I was like, I literally went on Facebook and make like a post saying all the things that violates the national security law. And I was just I I don't know, like I thought it was a joke. Um, and then I think I I kept on staying in Hong Kong. Um, when it came into effect and um, eventually, like, I think a few days after it came into effect, um, I got a few, like, calls from my friends who have, who have, like, really good knowledge about, like, they have, like, their own insider tips, like, people inside the government. And they were like, you better go soon, like, you because the national security police are going to the government is going after they're prioritizing people who are involved in like foreign policy, like anything's related to the foreign government. And I'm part of it. Um, and they were like, you know, you're definitely on the watch list. Um, and so I was like, well, wow, like <laughs> I really <laughs> like, I mean, I, like, I, I didn't know that what I am doing, it's, it's getting so much attention from the government. Um, and so I like I got the warning from a few friends, a few calls, and I I feel like things are getting off. Um, and I I basically had like a few hours to think about um, whether I should really like when I should go. Um, and I just remember, yeah, like I I still I still saw like the primaries, the Democratic primaries happening. I I was I was still on the streets canvassing for candidates, and then. Um, basically a few days after that I left Hong Kong I, I got on a plane and then um, came to the U.S. and I was really lucky because at that time my student visa was still valid so I was able to basically like just get a flight ticket and then go um, and so I, I just did that immediately like after you know a, you know a few days after hearing all these calls um, and then when I came here I was like what is going on actually <laughs> like you know like am, am i so like am i ever going to be able to go back i thought to myself like this is probably pro like temporarily like I, I i would come here and then after the like the the first rush of like arrest or like things like that like you know it's it's 
people who eventually realize this law is is like it's a bluff like it's not going to be serious and then at that time i can go back like stuff like i i just have like all these sort of hopes that i would be able to return but then they arrested jimmy lai they arrested a, a bunch of like activists um and i thought to myself okay you know maybe not <laughs> and so um i think in december 2020 i went online and announced to the people that i have officially left hong kong um because previously that i didn't want to draw too much attention to like me leaving um hong kong i like still have hopes that i would be able to return it was just temporary um but in december i just decided to went online and say that you know, perhaps this is like indefinite. Um, like I, um, I'm, I left Hong Kong and I would continue to do what I have been doing in the past. Um, but unfortunately, I, I, maybe in the foreseeable future, I wouldn't be able to um, set foot again in Hong Kong. Um, and then after that, you know, after I announced it, it's sort of like kind of like a certificate that it's confirmed um and now what not like like what now like what should i do to stay here um and so i you know file my application to uh, as an asylum uh, asylee and i was really lucky again i i don't know how this works but <laughs> i was really lucky that i got approved in just half year um and became the first hong konger that um you know secure asylum in in the us after uh, the 2019 movement so yeah like you know again it's all it's all really like unimaginable you know if you asked me five years ago like if like would i can i imagine that i would be a refugee um you know like um in the us like i i and and the reason of it is because of um political persecution i would never imagine that to happen to me yeah, but unfortunately, it's happening to Hong Kongers around the world. Um, people have to leave the the city in different ways. Um, you know, I've heard of really crazy story of like crossing the border like illegally. Um, you know, like climbing and all that kind of things to get into the country because not everyone is so um, lucky like me that I was able to just get a flight ticket and come. Um, I've heard of like, you know, people trying to get on the boat and get out from the city and we have seen successful case, but we have also seen, you know, people that fail to leave and they were arrested, um, intercepted, you know, in the middle of water. Um, that's the reality of, um, a lot of the Hong Kongers who, uh, went to the streets thinking that, you know, doing the right things for them and. Um, but then we we are basically chased um, to every corner, um, and um, a lot of them, you know, we're not lucky enough, and and they are locked behind bars. Um, and so for me, I think my mission here is to um, do the things that they were not able to do, and to speak for them here. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, you and the other Hong Kongers who are doing that from abroad largely are are left to do that work because as you mentioned those those who stayed in hong kong jimmy lai being being one of the more prominent names are in prison 
but the Chinese Communist Party's uh, repression isn't really bound by borders of mainland China, certainly, or, or even in Hong Kong. Uh, this concept of transnational repression uh, has gained such prominence lately as a CCP tactic where uh, even you and the other Hong Kongers who have sought safety and asylum elsewhere um, become the subject of harassment and intimidation uh, by the, the Chinese authorities. Um, just in December of last year, there was a bounty uh, placed on, on your head. Um, this has happened to other Hong Kongers around the world, outside of Hong Kong as well, um, for your role in, in all of the activities that, that you described, which, which they deem hostile against the People's Republic of China. You put out a, a statement that I want to read from um, just after the, the bounty was placed. You said, Quote, I knew from the day I left Hong Kong to seek asylum in the U.S. that this was an inevitable outcome. In my decade-long activism, I've witnessed and experienced the extent of the CCP's harassment and intimidation of people who hold views different to them. This is not just with fellow Hong Kongers, but also Tibetans, Uyghurs, and other Chinese dissidents, all of whom are targeted simply for supporting democracy and freedom and speaking up for their rights. When you, this, this broader trend um, transnational repression is kind of, you know, jargon in a sense, but it's very real to, to people like you and other Hong Kongers and those other communities that you mentioned around the world. What does it look like at an individual level, the harassment and intimidation for you personally? I think, so, you know, the type of, I think this is CCP's, like, tactic for a very long time is to, you know, now there are activists that left their country, like left China, left Hong Kong, um, and they're causing so like every sort of trouble for to the Chinese um, government. Um, and their tactic is to first, um, you know, harass your family and back home um, so that you would, you know, for any human being who have, um, <laughs> you know, have a heart, um, they might say, you know, like, okay, let's stop what I'm doing. And like, uh, for the safety of my family, I'm I'm going to stop whatever that I'm doing. Um, that's the f like, pretty much like the first thing they would do to um, intimidate you um, is to control your your family and, and cause any any pain that they could cause to to family. So it happened like, you, you know, families might be like in home arrest, like they they would be like, under like extreme surveillance by the Chinese authorities. Um, and and furthermore is, you know, threats um, that they impose um, through their their agents in, in you know, uh, overseas. Um, and we never really like gave it a name. Like this happens for decades, um, decades long. Um, to Chinese dissidents, we never gave it a name. Um, it was not until recently, like a the recent few years, that we started to say this is transnational repression. That is, um, that the Chinese government is is doing to dissidents across the, uh, around the world. Um, and I think many of us have have said this. Many many activists have said this. Um, it's not really like you know, transnational repression, it doesn't really like capture everything that Chinese government is doing. It's essentially a human rights crime, um, you know, to to follow activists 
to every corner in in, in the world um, to to send them jet threats um, and you know employ a whole like you know internet campaign to like harass you and send you like messages um, to basically to get you to every corner um, to the end right like to to stop you from from speaking up Th these are crimes and we see that in a lot of like sometimes it was reported but a lot of the times when these things happen it was not covered in the media um people don't get to like share their story um for me you know it, it happened as early as 2019 when i was like organizing rallies in, in in boston where i was studying um like i was followed to my dorm after i organized a rally in in boston i was i was tailed all the way back to my dorm and i have to call the police for that um and actually uh two years ago like i think a year ago um you know the doj officially um filed an, an indict indictment on one of the person who were involved in spying over my activities and as i read through the whole case like the, all the evidence that was laid out like i didn't realize that i was actually like they were actually quite close to me like they go to every act activities like every protest that are organized in boston they took pictures of people that participated in in the rally um and then they sent it over to chinese authorities they were secret police um and even though and and that person is actually an, an american citizen um and even that he's not the only one um we we know that there were a bunch of people behind like working with him but because like it, like we reacted too slowly like too slow and so some of them already went back to china and never came back but you think about you know this is like the the scale of um you know transnational repression of china is that like they're essentially targeting a college students like a 20 year old um girl here that are just you know organizing rallies they were they were so scared um and they try to use any way to intimidate us and to stop us um the bounty when it came down it was not as shocking as we heard about it the first time i was like the the second round of people that were put on the bounty list but i remember like on that day like i woke up to the news and i just like it's kind of like a robotic respond like reaction that i have to like you know take all the media interviews and then you know put out the statement that kind of thing and i like i remember that night after i finished everything i was like oh gosh, like, you know, like, uh, you know, a hundred million dollar, like, a, no, a, a million dollar and a hundred thousand um, in US dollar, like, is put on me. The, the uh, to put into context, I'm three times more, like, I worth three times more than a child rapist or a murderer in Hong Kong. Um, that's how scared they are. Um, and for me, it's, the, the, the thing is like, okay, how safe am I? like in the US and how safe, um, you know, people um, close to me, like, are, are they going to be affected as well? Um, it, you know, like, it's finally happening to me that I have to worry um, about, you know, the contacts that I have, um, you know, friends or like people close to me, are they going to be affected as well? Um, 
so immediately I was like, you know, I need to get a camera for my home. Um, you know, I don't know what's, what's going to happen. And I remember actually on the first two days after uh, the bounty was uh, announced, there were like, I, like, there are a few times I heard people knocking on my door and I was so like paranoid. I was like, what's going on? But maybe it's just like random people, you know, like, I don't know, maybe like a friend or like someone knock on a, on the wrong door, but I was so scared. Like, I, I don't know if like, if, if it was like, you know, Chinese agents that are like scaring me. And so this is how it's, you know, getting to me, like I get nervous about these more small things. Um, but I think, again, this is like their tactic. This is how they wanted to stop us. And, and therefore, when I put out the statement, I said it clearly, like, because this is a tactic, I'm not going to fall into this. Like, it's, this is their way to silence us. And if we stop here, what is that for what we were doing in the past? Like, you know, we all like, from the moment that I came here, I already expected all sort of things that would happen to me, including, you know, the harassment and intimidation that I would get. Um, and when it happened, obviously, it's still shocking, it's still scary. Um, but it's, you know, like, you got to carry on, like, um, if I don't want to stop here and, and say, you know, I'm I'm out, because we we haven't reached the end goal, my end goal is one day I'll be able to go back to Hong Kong. I'm able to return to my home, right? And so for that reason, I would just, I, I said, I will keep going with what I'm doing. I will keep, you know, advocating for the freedom and democracy for Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, that speaks so, so highly of, of your own uh, passion and your courage um, to do this work. And it also really resonates with why we at the Reagan Institute um, like to tell, to help people uh, like you tell their own stories um, because it was so important to President Reagan, uh, the work that people like you were doing around the world to stand up for freedom and advance, advance democracy. Uh, we like to end on a hopeful, optimistic note. So before we get to our lightning round, um, you spoke a little bit at the at the end of your last answer there around your, your hope to return to, to Hong Kong, um, to your home in the future. Um, what's your hope? for the future of Hong Kong? Well, there are a few things that I'm, um, a few angles that I, like the things that I wanted to achieve as I'm advocating for Hong Kong. First, I think as, you know, as the first um, political asylee um, from Hong Kong here in the US, I really hope that um, we are able to um, advocate for a humanitarian pathway for Hong Kongers. Um, where there are more people getting out of jail right now, um, even though there are, you know, the BNO schemes from the British government, there are also immigration scheme from, um, Canadian government. Um, these are options obviously, but we need something in the U S it's ridiculous to say that, you know, the U S have done nothing to protect, um, the people in Hong Kong for, for those who are mostly perse most persecuted, um, you know, we, we built no pathway for them to come to the U S. Um, the only way people have came is either illegally or like me who have already have a visa and a, and a way to come here. Um, right. Like, but like, there are a lot of people who 
are released on bail in Hong Kong. They don't have a passport. It's confiscated. Um, there are people who get out of jail. Recently, um, two, two activists um, who finished a sentence um, came forward and say that after they finished the sentence, um, they were still under um, high surveillance, um, continued to be monitored by the government, and were not able to get their passport back. They weren't able to leave um, Hong Kong. So we need to find a way to um, provide that pathway for these Hong Kongers to come. Um, these people who have, you know, like established evidence, like well-rounded um, fear for persecution. Um, I think this is the first thing that we need to do um, in like for the U.S. And I mean, everywhere around the world that we should protect these, you know, the people that are most persecuted. Um, second, I think what I'm doing here is to also continue to tell people the, the truth. It's, you know, what exactly is happening in Hong Kong. Um, I know we have seen a lot of campaigns that put out by the government recently after COVID, you know, the Hello Hong Kong campaign, like, like you know, like come back to Hong Kong, like, you know, we're, we're like, we're back to the business, please come back and do business with us, like, you know, come travel and stuff like that. Um, a lot of the things that they're doing, either like, you know, cultural events or things like that, it's all to cover up what they have done in 2019 and 2020. And, you know, it's important for us to remember that as they do these things, they continue to persecute um, people in the court. They continue to arrest more people um, that speaks out um, in defiance of the Chinese government. They continue to um, prosecute um, these people in the court. They continue to put them into jail. Um, there are also people who haven't gone on trial, but were in like pre-trial detention for like years long um, for no reason, right? Um, and these things deserve so much more attention. These political prisoners, um, their plights, their story needs to be heard. And we can't just, you know, ignore this fact and say, you know, Hong Kong is back. Like Hong Kong has is doing great. Let's go back. Um, because that's essentially what the government is trying to do, like, is to cover it up. And, and so we need to, like, you know, make sure the political prisoners, their names are being mentioned and that they're not being forgotten. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm here to, like, make sure <laughs> to, to tell the truth and to, um, to raise awareness and tell people that these things are still happening and, you know, government authorities that are responsible for the human rights abuses, responsible for the deterioration of undermining the rule of law in Hong Kong, they should all be held accountable, um, either by, you know, sanctions tools or, um, you know, uh, in, you know, causing economic and political consequences. We need to hold them accountable, make them pay. And, and also, on the other hand, to make sure that we do do so to make sure we uh, could possibly call, um, make changes to their future um, behavior um, by by making it more costly. Um, so I think also here, you know, with we the Hong Kongers and with you know my, our community, 
I hope that we are able to also build up our community here to to strengthen it and to be able to promote to other people about the culture and identity of Hong Kong. Because if things continue to get worse, um, this is our last line. Like we still have people around the world to continue to fight. Um, and we need to do that first by um, strengthening and building the foundation for our community. So these are, you know, three or four things that I'm um, focusing on working here right now. Well, we end each episode of the Reaganism podcast by asking our guests to share with us their favorite uh, book about President Reagan, speech from President Reagan, or quote from President Reagan. Do you have three, two, or any one of those to share with our listeners today? Yeah, um, well, so I did some research. <laughs> I can't just pull out a, a quote on, like, you know, out of my head. So I did some research and um, I came across with this letter that uh, President Reagan wrote to the public when he announced his Alzheimer's disease. I know that he have, you know, said a lot of things about communism, um, you know, a lot of things that I can pull out to talk about China. But I think this letter he wrote was really like it's a really personal one. And I, I remember there's one quote that he um, put in the letter. But she says, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunsets of my life. I know that for America, there will always be a bright dawn ahead. Um, first, I think it was it was breathtaking. And I think it, it was really humbling for him to say this. Um, essentially, what he was saying is like, there are tens of millions of American people here in this country. Um, and, you know, among these people, there are only one of, he is only the the you know only one of them um although it feels like he he seems a big person he, he seems like a big person but he's you know just one of them and every one of us have limited lifetime you know people die but but the country go on um there are more people behind like you know after us that would continue to carry on the mission and our mission in our lifetime is to make sure this place is you know is, is a better place for ourselves for others and for future generation. Um, you know, think about how we get here from, you know, from the history to, to today. Like, it's because many people before us have built this country and the government, right? They have, they have laid out all the rocks and stones as they walk their lives so that we can get here um, from where they end and continue to do the same thing. Um, for our future generation and the next generation will do the same thing. They will keep laying the rocks and stones, um, keep going forward to to achieve a better life. Um, so for myself, like I remember, you know, as advocates myself, um, I remember I, especially after I left Hong Kong, I get asked a lot about, you know, do you think you would ever be able to see the end of CCP? Would you ever be able to be back to Hong Kong? And my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Um, but I got to think there is hope. I, I got to think that, you know, eventually I will be back. Um, because if I don't, like, I, I can't go on and and, and um, there is no goal here with what I'm doing. But what if I, I won't? Like, what if I never would never be able to see this in my lifetime? Um, does it really matter? Because I think whether or not I would be able to go back, the end goal doesn't change. And my mission here is to try to reach the end goal and make sure we're making progress. At least we're not like 
walking backwards. We have to make sure we're not walking backwards. We're not taking the stones and rocks that were laid out by the people before us. Um, and so uh, my moral is that we got to have hope. This is my mission in this lifetime. And even though if I, even if I can't see the, the end of CCP, even if I can, um, you know, be back to Hong Kong, um, I hope my future generation would be able to do that. And if I don't do like, if I stay silent, if I don't do anything like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if my future generation can get there. So, uh, you know, we gotta have hope. We gotta believe that there is an end to this and there would always be a light, um, at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, although it, it feels really long and dark at this point, um, but I'm sure the things that we're doing will leave a legacy and will make an impact to, um, to, to this process. And I, I need to, you know, we got to think that our future generation would be able to set foot in the city again. And I, I think we will, we will one day reach that goal. Yeah. Well, Francis Sweet, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And thanks to all of you for listening today. Thank you, Rachel. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Thank you.